Before I start the show, I want to take time to shout out the Virtual Speed and Performance Clinic, sponsored by Simply Faster. If you haven't signed up, get to it, as the price point and the content are just simply too good to pass up. Take $15 off at checkout when you use my personal code, FTGUPOD15, at checkout. Again, that's FTGUPOD15. The guest list is phenomenal, and the topics that will be covered will hit just about every area of athletic development. Oh yeah, did I mention there's an opportunity to win a lot of free stuff, such as a free lap timing system to validate training, VMAX Pro to measure bar speed and also validate training. This offer is simply too good to pass up, so make sure you check out the show notes for links to the site. Now, on to the show. Welcome to From the Ground Up Athletic Performance Podcast. On this week's episode, I sit down with Ryan Thompson of Last Resort Restoration. When we train, we train the brain. Ryan shares how the nervous system and its overall readiness or threat response is a cornerstone for meaningful athletic development. Ryan offers simple means to integrate neurotraining and empower those we work with to make meaningful changes at a base level. This is a great episode with a great system at its center, the Square One system. So without further ado, let's get to it. Welcome to From the Ground Up Athletic Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Curtis, and today my guest is Ryan Thompson of Last Resort Restoration. How's it going, Ryan? Doing well, man. Thanks for having me on. Super psyched for this episode, man. We had a little talk and chat offline. Like I said, I said, are you the Square One guy? And you said, yeah, I sure am. So uh, we're going to obviously be having some square one vibes again. I've had several. I've had uh, Chris and uh, Javon on a previous episode, and I've shared some things over the uh, last couple of weeks. So we're kind of continuing down that neural rabbit hole, um, and square one will pr- obviously be a part of that. But we have a lot of different just aspects that I'm looking forward to get into because everybody has a different kind of take on how to best integrate the brain into training. And uh, I feel like every time I talk to someone that really prizes the neural aspect of training, I just get another nugget or something else. I say, ah, I haven't really thought about it that way. So I'm looking forward to our conversation today. And uh, I just want to give you an opportunity to introduce yourself, kind of tell me what you're involved in, and then we'll just go from there. I pretty much decided to, well, I fell into the neurology rabbit hole. I ended up meeting uh, my friend Corey, who ended up working with uh, Sean Sherman and his Square One system. And uh, Corey introduced me to Sean. And when, well, at first, as many people see what Square One is, it kind of looks a little bit different, a little bit unorthodox, and a little hard to grasp from the get-go. So it didn't make sense to me personally until I got hurt. And a quick little brief story is I was squatting one day, hurting my, my hip and my back. And I couldn't back bridge or work any lower body exercises for like, do like months. And the gym I was working at at the time had a very good reputation for corrective exercise, right? Not saying that the traditional route doesn't always work, but does it always hit the target that's needed to get us moving well? So I went through months of drills, uh, chiropractic, uh, PT exercises, and dude, I just, nothing was getting better. Corey has come back from Chicago and I met with him for maybe like a half hour, puts me on the table, squares me up and I'm all good. Like I can back bridge, no pain. I can go do my, uh, my lower body workouts, no pain. And that was about five and a half years ago. I haven't had a problem since, or if I did have any other thing occur, I could take care of myself through 
uh, what I've learned from square one and other neurology pieces. So taking that, decided to go into creating my own gym and applying what I know and have learned from Sean and other people in the neurology field to figure out how can I make this work best for everyone else. Yeah, and I feel like our first talking point is really going to be kind of about rationalization and how you rationalize your training because you were speaking to it's not wrong to try and approach it through corrective exercises like I mix some of those things in well but it's all about how you rationalize things and how you stack things so I really like to quote I think you might have tagged me in this you tagged several people but it was a while back you said that your favorite question you have in in regards to strength coaches is how do you know it's okay or safe to advance the difficulty of exercises? And how would you best use the nervous system in order to guide you, in order to facilitate that? So a lot of the times, let's go with a traditional approach and talk about why that might not be the most optimal way, perhaps, to uh, project yourself into building the structure or rationalization of training, and why the nervous system may just be a natural, easy, and beneficial route to take. Yeah, pretty much anyone that I've spoken to or asked that question to, they either say they can go up with, they can perform the task at whatever the recommended reps are. And if visually it looks good, right. And it's, it reminds me of the same thing as looking at a car. It looks really nice on the outside, but what happens when you turn the key? Is it going to start or is it just going to sit there like a dud? So we can still use that old measure, right? Like I still use that in my gym today but only after I've set a neural foundation. Uh, And I'll explain more of what that means. So the way that I use square one is if I have an athlete, a brand new athlete come in and I have them perform a body weight squat, put them through uh, the neural test from square one. And if they fail that test, that tells me that if their body cannot handle their own weight going down and up, why in the world would I put weight on his back, right? It's just going to cause... Uh, more chaos internally in terms of communication. I was just going to ask as far as like, do you ever cue or do you let them move naturally within that assessment as well? Because like if you're dealing with somebody who's like extremely uh, green and new, um, would you go over that before using that in a testing metric as far as like how to even squat? Would that be a consideration? I'm just going deep here on the testing aspect. Sometimes it will depend. Like if they're, if they're super green, I normally like to just like see how can they figure out how to move. You know what I mean? Can you get down? And sometimes people who's green, uh, they're not in the weight room often. They majority of the time actually have a better squat than someone who spends time in the weight room. You know I mean? Just naturally figuring it out. Um, so like I'll let them do it themselves. And then if there's anything I need to tweak, we'll talk over it. So it's also uh, concepts of learning how to move. And I'm sure we'll get deeper into that. Or I'd definitely like to get deeper into that as we move forward. And sometimes I'd like to not intervene. So I'll let them squat. I'll clean them up with square one and have them return. And I'll see if there's anything visually different that happens and kind of just let the nervous system take it out. Cause our brains like to figure things out. Right. So I said, all right, well, I don't need to guide you just yet. So let's see how far you can make it on your own before I have to intervene. So, so you're using that as a metric rather than, uh, than superficial cues and things is, is kind of what you're getting out there rather than a periodization mm-hmm. uh, model per se is what you're saying. Or as well for that too, because I'd love to get into that because I feel like it could bleed into that as well. Yeah, we're gonna go everywhere with this. So, like <laughs> sure, in, in the it. beginning, in the beginning, like I'll I'll let them kind of figure it out. Like the first like three sessions, I need to let them get used to the table work because they're they're new to that and know like, and then figure out um, how the gym runs itself. So I teach them how to squat, 
I teach them how to do pull-ups and I teach them how to deadlift. Those are my, my three, I guess you can call cornerstones. Um, so this way we're going over sled and carries, right? Those are the other primary movements I want. And then once they can show me that they can get through that well, then I start to sprinkle in these different uh, movement challenges. Like how can I challenge your eyes? How can I challenge the way that your eyes can interpret data and then create motor outputs? Uh, can you guys do backwards? Can I teach you how to juggle? Like all these different tasks that I think are important for baseline or creating a baseline of athleticism. Can you coordinate your body well? It's a, it's actually going to probably peek its head throughout multiple uh, talking points as we go through this. So one more thing before I kind of jump into, I guess, more rationale behind uh, what we're trying, what you're trying to attack through the square one lens. We'll kind of take it back for anybody that doesn't understand. I guess you would say the uh, academic explanation of it as far as motor control, motor patterns and and uh, motor learning. Uh, we'll kind of start going down that uh, rabbit hole and then we'll kind of probably peek back into uh, threat response and all that from there. But one thing that you said that I've seen actually uh, mentioned in the square one terminology is the fact that, you know, in the traditional sense, we feel like if we teach someone to squat appropriately, if we teach someone to hinge appropriately, then we're going to work on these weak uh, portions of the kinetic chain and it's going to work itself out. That was the traditional approach, which we were speaking to kind of these corrective exercises and strengthening the kinetic chain along the way. The only problem uh, that I've seen as the square one methodology states is that all you're really learning is more optimal compensatory patterns for that particular movement. And what we're trying to get through to is more dynamic means anyways, uh, beyond that, especially uh, for most of the people that are focusing in my podcast on athletic development. I do train powerlifters, but if you're working on athletes or people who have to involve gait, uh, that's something, another consideration that we'll be bringing to the table as well. So I've just seen it mentioned, basically, you're just strengthening compensatory patterns. We all have them anyways, uh, but we're not fixing anything and we're not going to uh, voila, square one or the root of the problem, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah, agreed. Right. I think that the biggest thing that square one does is giving people the ability to react when these uh, compensatory problems start to happen. So like, obviously you work with a high school audience. So do I, and every rep is not perfect, but I want to make sure that my athletes are still safe whenever they happen. So let's just say, for example, I got a kid uh, squatting and every once in a while, he'll shift to his left, right? If we get into newer weight, right? Because I like to keep them in an area where I know their nervous system is feeling safe. So they'll grow. I call that growing in the green. Or you'll commonly hear me say that the nervous system is green or red, referring to a pass-fail test. Um, but when we get up into these higher weights again and start challenging the nervous system more, these little things will peak out. But we can still help the body respond well if I have them do body weight shifting left and right get the body to accept that, even though it's not correct, right? We're humans first, athletes second. So at least I know that if it does happen, it's not going to have as negative as an impact as it would without the intervention of square one. Yeah, and those are all good points and good rationale too, because like you said, we're humans first. Really, we're trying to optimize kids. Uh, we're, we're both dealing with younger people typically, but we may deal with others as well. But we're trying to optimize 
individual's health and their longevity first. I mean, that is my number one goal and teach people how to live a healthy lifestyle. And then beyond that, absolutely athletic development. But what you speak to as well is something we can get into in a little bit. You talked about juggling and skill acquisition and all these different things, the variability of training as well, because I've seen uh, individuals we were talking about like Dan Fichter and Chris Corfus talk about just even hand spacing uh, and eye patterns and things. And you've mentioned as well as you're you know, working out. So variability, be it for a threat response or be it just to keep the brain engaged. These are all just, man, we're just throwing a lot of sprinkles out early in this one, aren't we? <laughs> yes, we are. There's so much to cover, right? That's right. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be a good time. So I guess where I would kind of like to go next before we kind of get into like a threat response is taking it all the way back to motor control, which is pattern generation, essentially, uh, motor patterns, okay, and how we get multi-joint actions involved there, and then how we best optimize for skill acquisition or motor learning. So if we can kind of attack those three things, because I feel like if we're looking at things through a neural lens, uh, sometimes those words get thrown out interchangeably, and I feel like sometimes people miss the big picture. So just talk about how you make that a major consideration, and obviously with square one, it's simple, uh, but why it's important. Uh, to kind of progress things in that manner. So pretty much how I progress them with square one, right? I want to make sure that everything that my athletes do is neurally accepted, no matter what. So uh, I'll just use an example of my guys squatting. If I have an athlete doing uh, four by six at whatever weight, I, I use square one in between every single set. So you set, you do your set, I'll meet you at the table, I check. If there is a failed muscle test, even though visually it looks good, visually it's very easy effort-wise for them. So, okay, you're red. You're going to stay there for the next one. And they've accepted that. So, okay, you go back again after you do uh, your other set would not come back and you hit that weight again. And all of a sudden you look at me and you go, did you change the weight? I go, no. And there's an even easier exertion. Visually, it looks even better, more stable. And they get on the table and they pass the neural test. I go, okay, well, we have two options. I said, does that feel like work? And they go, no. And I say, okay, then I will let you bump up and wait. So let's go up five pounds. And then I'll have them squat that again. And then it still looks visually good, just like the last one. Put them on the table. It's red. Okay, you're red again. That means we stay put. So like they had to learn that it's okay to not rush up and wait. And I also let them know that, you know, if you're green here, we're going to stay at either this weight or about five to 10 pounds below it. And we're just going to learn how to move here. Cause one thing I've noticed with my athletes, especially the, the longer that I've been around is that they need to learn how to move heavier weights. I think it's a necessary establishment, especially for these middle school, high school kids. So I'll break up my workout into 13 weeks. The first six weeks, they'll do four by six. And I make sure that they're neurologically solid through that entire, I guess, the micro cycle. Then they'll move into four by four. So we'll bump up about you know, 15 pounds, whatnot. And we run through the same process. And then we'll get into five by twos where they're moving heavy weight. And I have to make sure that same thing after every set, we are neurologically sound. Once we're neurologically sound, I'm looking at form as well. They have to be good. So once they finish the entire progression, then we go back to the beginning and run through it all again. And this time they have experience of exercise. They've spent the last 13 weeks gaining this neural foundation. And now we can go back to those lighter weights and let's revisit. What did you do for that first micro cycle? Where were you at? Let's just say they were squatting 95 pounds for that first week, first two weeks. 
go back and they go and they hit it and they're like, wow, this is easy. Cause now they, they understand concepts of movement plus neural acceptance. And then as the, I call them phases, as the phases go on, I start to add in these different elements that give them a deeper focus, right? So the first two are pretty much just your vanilla lift. They're just concentric based and learning how to move. Third phase, I start bringing in isometrics and I start to bring in an eccentric portion where everything they do is now a three second eccentric, one second isometric. And I tell them those weights are going to drop. That's going to be okay. You have to be okay with that because we're looking at an entire different way to lift weights. And then they run through now with more experience through different tempos and isometrics. And then we run through it again. So it's just like uh, playing a sport. What's, uh, what'd you play? Me, I played football, track, and baseball. Okay. So first time you stepped on a football field, how good were you? Not really good. I was undersized and <laughs> not real great. Right. But then what happened the next year, right? Now you have more experience in the game. You're bigger. You, have, you know what's going on. You got better, mm -hmm. I'm sure. No, I have so much that, that I ever wrote down. Like, so, you know, we can go a thousand directions here. I guess my brain's working real good today. Uh, my first thing was like <laughs> rationalization of like the testing. Like, I just want to see, like, I always like to hear how people describe because how we choose to describe things to me is like, it could truly be happening. You know what I'm saying? You get what I'm saying? But we mm -hmm. can all describe things a hundred different ways. So I want to throw a couple of terms out there. Like you said, a four by six, and then you'll do a test. So like, I want to see what your experience is as far as like the testing as they go along. And it's probably going to be variable, right? But do they tend to get better at the test as they go along? Uh, and my thought was, is that like the inhibition or excitation, like of the natural warming up progression uh, and the reduction of threat because they're becoming more familiar. So I was trying to rationalize that and just, I'm just trying to say everything that the viewer might be thinking here. So, yeah, dude, I, I want you to pick me apart uh, as much as you can, because that's how we learn, right? I want yeah. you to question everything I say. What, what would be your rationale? Like in that early stage, like, okay, you get your first set, everything's moving good we added uh, the weight change or whatever you went again, then we're red. So as they go along, do you see that kids are typically take a little bit to get warm and they tend to fail early or is it just kind of variable, uh, you know, just dependent? Uh, so, so what I've found is whenever I have someone who has not been through square one, right. They don't have any, any intentional neurological foundation set. They fail like everything. Everything is a new stimulus. Everything is sensed as a threat. So like it takes them normally between four and seven weeks before they really start to pass all the neural tests in terms of like, okay, in the beginning you squatted, you failed every single set in terms of the, you just couldn't organize yourself and your brain thought threat uh, around like week five or six, we have now progressed up to maybe 20 pounds more, but now I don't have to intervene as much and I don't have to always do square one to make you go up to the next weight. Does that make sense? And I found that with, with my clients who have been in for like four or five phases, their body has now, now I guess you could say has the ability to accept these stresses without my intervention. So like if I have a kid who's brand new green, he, or I don't want to use green in that term. He's very new. He'll fail everything from the get-go. But if I have a kid who's been through square one, like these kids are getting squared up twice a week, I could put them on to whatever weight and then let them go up, recheck them. They're still green. So they're building more resilience to the stress of what I'm having them do. And it's squatting, deadlifting, gait. 
I was interested in this because if you've listened to our podcast, I know you listen every now and then, uh, is the mm-hmm. fact that I'm, I'm really into triphasic. So I was wondering what has stood out to you as far as like uh, how it interacts with the nervous system and how kids respond to eccentric and isometric means versus concentric means as far as what you've seen as far as stress and the response to different methodologies within that. Uh, yeah, so this one's cool. So that's why I wanted to bring phase three in to bring in this eccentric and isometric kind of thing. So concentrically, they got stronger, right? Based off of what I've seen in the past training without square one and square one, they've made significant changes. Then when uh, they go through phase three, they understand better control in terms of like concept, right? And then also we know how much of a benefit it is to overload a muscle in eccentric and an isometric phase. Then um, they still fail everything, right? It's almost like them starting all over again. So now I'm just building another foundation on another form of contraction. When they go back to the next phase, which is I give, I, I have them go back to a vanilla concentric phase after phase three, just to see if there's any significant difference. And I, I'm, I shouldn't be surprised, but I always am. Their, their control and their strength has jumped up immensely. Yeah, absolutely. So that was like the one thing that I saw. Yeah, it was just like overloading muscle tissue through these different means made the baseline of lifting so much easier. Yeah. And, you know, it's all about, again, how we rationalize or the perspective in which we place things like the traditional triphase. It would be if you were just thinking from the beginning is eccentric, isometric, concentric. But you're hitting that concentric before, again, to ingrain the motor control and basic patterns. And then you're putting it even under more tension uh, over time because now we're more adequate at it. So what I'm saying is a lot of people will probably say, well, triphase, it goes this way. Well, I tend to do it that way too, because I wouldn't want to put time under tension uh, whenever we're not optimal for motor control or the generation of multi-joint patterns at that time. So uh, I love the rationale of that. And that's awesome. But the validation, because it's been a really great tool for me as well. So something uh, that was also, I was also thinking about, it sounds like a lot of compound movements. Uh, So Mm -hmm. I'd kind of like to rationalize compound versus isolated, because if we're dealing with motor control at the beginning, that's like the basis of like pattern generation, which could be very isolated, whereas motor patterns would be more compound and multi-joint. So are there ever any times within a weight setting that you would go more isolated if you do see things lagging behind and also, I guess, layer that with your neural aspects? Um, not too much, just to be honest, not, not so much in the beginning, just because it takes them so long to figure out these compound movements itself, right? And I don't want to assume that, that they need the isolation right away uh, because most of, the, most of my audience is between seventh and about ninth grade or 10th grade so you know i mean a lot of them just don't know how to how to contact the ground how to move and um i figured that just understanding squatting right and but i do have well i guess more of my warm-up would be more isometric based instead of just like isolating does that make sense to you yeah absolutely so like having them hold uh split squats at the bottom and just figuring out how to balance or holding just a bilateral squat at the bottom and then coming up within like 15 seconds, moving really slow. That's so that they can figure out how to move. That was a a big thing that I had an issue with in the very beginning when I decided to go on my own was I can't rush this stuff because they, you know, I went from working with kids that were in a D one setting who, you know what I mean? You tell them to do one thing and they got it in like three seconds flat to 
you know, this more of this general population where we, you know, I mean, that kind of skill acquisition is far and few between at the moment. So uh, slowing everything down. And then if we need to go into these different, like, isolated positions, that will help. Because I've had some kids uh, put them in a split, st- a split stance and have them hold it. And they're there for about three seconds before they topple over. So if it's necessary, yes, uh, I'll do that. But if they're pretty good from the get-go and they understand that and I can use square one to help get that moving along quicker, then because it's all a pretty much trial and error and see how it goes. Yeah. So we, we've been kind of referencing this the whole time, but I kind of want to bring it back to it. And I'm going to do that by using a quote by Mr. Dan Victor himself, uh, something I stole offline. It says, <laughs> remember, survival is paramount for the brain. Let's get the best possible input so your brain can produce the best possible output. We want to see, balance, and breathe better than anyone. That is the most logical thing I've ever heard in my life, right? Uh, But let's be realistic with ourselves. Most programs, we don't step out on a football field. We don't step into a gym typically and say, we want to see, balance, and breathe better than anyone. We don't, you know, that's just not a consideration typically. So let's kind of talk about how the input is so important for determining the output, uh, what we've been talking about. And that's been flowing through the whole conversation of people been paying attention. If you can't load eccentrically, you're leaking energy the whole time. You can't return concentrically. Eventually, you're just going mm-hmm. to not be able to return to the top. Uh, and that's in a different manner. You know, we're talking about energy and all that there. But uh, here, again, the input determines the output. Uh, that is the most pivotal part to me in understanding the nervous system. And a lot of people miss that because there's a lot of juju and a lot of talk and a lot of parts mm-hmm. to the brain, mm-hmm. input and output. So let's talk about that a little bit and uh, considerations for that. If we cannot receive input properly then our outputs are just going to be trashy or or glitchy i'd call it well one thing that i like to do with athletes who straight who come in is understand that they can or make sure that they can converge diverge can they handle vor can they track can they balance and what's their breathing look like right because if all those things are failing from the get-go what happens when all that's happening and you're under load and that was, that was another thing that I really liked about the isometric extremes, you know, after I, I don't just throw them into that from the get go, once they're with me for a while and they, I know I can trust them, I'll throw them into that. I want to see how, what happens when you freak out, what's going to happen when you get to that, like you're at that minute and a half mark and you start bouncing your leg and you start breathing heavy. I so you're going to bail out or like, it's not like a mental toughness thing, right? I just want to see where you're at because if you're in my gym and I have multiple athletes around. And I need to turn my back for a second. Can I trust you? That's a really big thing in my gym is I need to, I'm running the one man show. So when I have more of my advanced athletes in there, I need to make sure that you are receiving input correctly so that if you ever were to get in a situation, you would know that you're okay to get out of it and I can get to you quickly. Right? So do you understand where you are in space and time? Can you sense danger and how can you get out of it? Does that make sense? I answer your question. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we we have things like this occur all the time and we don't realize it. Like there's times like I live in Louisiana, like there's snakes and things here, right? Like if you've ever mm-hmm. gone out at night and you think you see something, it spooks you. Like you, you get fearful, your heart rate rises, your your breathing changes. And it's mm-hmm. my, it might not be like a snake or something like that. But like if you thought you saw something like that, like the fear and we could get into the brain and all the different parts um, and our, you know, amygdala and all that. But 
yeah, our brain is just completely and totally, you know, doing that all the time. It's just, uh, I guess you would say censoring this information. Uh, and sometimes we're seeing things or threats that really aren't, uh, because our body is built to do that. We had to, our brain had to be, uh, it evolved to protect us from threat. Uh, so threat is an important consideration. And, you know, a lot of the times we're running from threats that are non-existent even, uh, and that we don't realize, and that may be way away because if I'm with, with my experience with square one thus far, if I'm being honest, I've not had the ability to run it in like a, uh, weight room setting. I've run it more in like a, you've been injured and I know you've had an injury and okay. Now you've had time to go through all the little, uh, you know, protocols. And now let's really clear this out of your system, essentially. Uh, so that's mm-hmm. where I've been most familiar because I've been able to identify threats um, pretty easily. Right. Uh, with that. But uh, that's been my most common, I guess, interaction with the square one system. It was kind of tough to take that into a gym setting. Right. If I have multiple athletes working with that. Um, so like if they're so that's why I like to have I have two tables set up in there so that after they're set you're over to the table i check you're good next person on you're good got a person over here check it make sure that every that's why i check literally everything because i want to make sure that my athletes can get through an entire workout while being homeostatic like if you think about that how rare is so non-existent almost (laughs) almost right so dude come on over you need to see it and some crazy stuff is going to happen but being able to to get their nervous system strong enough to no longer react to these, like you said, threats that may not be existent, right? Like if you're looking, if looking down shuts your body down and you're squatting like this or like this and you're looking down, right? That's a danger, right? So they need to be aware of that. Or if they still continue to do it, right? Because we work with adolescents who still do things. I need to make sure that they are safe, at least neurologically, so that they can make it through this workout in a thriving fashion, not a survival fashion, but being able to still dominate what they do and receive every goodie they can get from the bouts of exercise that they're going through. Yeah. I like that, that you said that to not just survive, because uh, I feel like sometimes it's like a badge of honor. You survived the workout or like I've told my, my uh, athletes several times that like everything's not easy versus hard. Like I'm not constructing Mm -hmm. something to make it easy or hard. I'm like, there is a goal within this exercise And we're trying to move towards that the best that we possibly can, the most optimally that we possibly can. And obviously you have to have an optimized nervous system to be able to do that. But I'm like, it's not about it being easy or hard today. It's not, you know, we construct that in our mind all the time. And if honestly, if we do that, then we've already got an idea of threat in our mind to start with. That's why I've like had to pick that apart. I'm like, today's not easy or hard today. There is a goal and we want to attack it optimally. And that's what you're speaking to actually. Uh, So let's talk a little bit about, I want to talk about this real quick before it shoots out of my mind. You're talking about more of like a state in which we're optimized to learn skill. Now, when is there ever a time in which you rationalize the overshoot or whenever you actually do want a negative neural response? Or is there ever a time where you want, I guess what you'd say, an overaccumulation of stress? Because something like triphasic, there's definitely a time where there's that overaccumulation of stress. Um, and sometimes you get great residual training effects uh, from that end of the aspect. Yeah. I'm always looking for negative tests. I I want negative responses because when I get a negative response, that means that we have more potential to grow. So that's why I'll use the, uh, the juggling, right? When they, when I told them that we were going to start juggling, they laughed at me naturally. Right. And they were like, dude, we don't know how to do that. And then I tell them that, you know, I taught myself how to juggle. I use square one 
to make sure that what I was doing was going to help me get the correct neural pathways. And then I said, I wrapped the heck out of it with myelin by skill, right? Practicing. So I, I made video proof. I showed them and then I stood in front of them and I showed them and they said, nah, I said, okay, well now you will try. So I, I like to keep them engaged with uh, different skills, right? So we can show them that you don't have to be afraid to try something new. And if you fail, it's actually a positive. And I, I listened to the other podcast that you did and you spoke of this, right? I want, I want them to fail so that they can grow. I love that you put that in there because something I really, we can't talk about it in extensively, but if you're going to get involved in square one, which me and you're both going to plug this at the end, like hell, because, you know, we believe in this system and shout mm-hmm. out, Sean, you know, we believe in the system and I believe it's very beneficial. One thing you'll find is you do need to uh, familiarize yourself with the table and it, it kind of almost becomes a language unto itself. So I want to kind of like zone into that for a moment because you said mm-hmm. you want a negative response. And it's not that you want that, but like, you're willing to get that. You understand? Because if, if we're in yeah. the wrong mind state, it could be, I want positive. I want positive. I want these kids to be perfect. Like, no, you're just learning. Like literally what's the strength. One of the great strengths of this system is I just see movement happening before me uh, as I'm doing it. Oh, I yeah. really do. And like, this sounds weird. I don't want to sound weird, but like I can just feel the body. I can feel their body. You know what I'm saying? Like just the subtle little inputs. Like you can literally feel where their nervous system is at on that day. I'm not going to say you're going to do it the first time. It might be a little bit of your, you know, you might irritate you a little bit, but if you'll just put a little bit in, you'll, you'll begin to almost connect with people, especially as you do it more often and you learn uh, the person in front of you. I've got just from my own experience. So negative response is great. That was awesome. I, I need I need to speak to you on that because I, I developed that with my athletes. I I love that, right? So they they all speak the language of the table, right? We'll just call it that. I have had them, they have tested me without me knowing. And this is one of my favorite stories to tell. So I'm working with one of my guys, and uh, he has a very I guess he has a very good sense of self, right? So he does his he does his squat, he comes over to the table and uh, he tests and he fails. And he looks at me, he goes, I knew it was going to fail. And I said, well, how do you know? Tell me about it. He goes, I got, once I racked it, he said, it didn't feel right. Something didn't feel right. And I said, okay. So like they started um, understanding what their body feels like when they're homeostatic and when they're not, which is, I think is a really cool ability for them to have. And th- I've had them tell me that they're like, I've tested you before to see if you were lying about the muscle test, right? Because you can manipulate a muscle test, mm-hmm. right? You know, I mean, there, it takes a very good skill to be good at muscle testing. So when, whenever, whatever I found matched up to what they were feeling inside, they knew it was for real. So again, not to get like super like, woo, right? But like, no, but it's, it's a feel, man. I've had those like experiences, like the first time you're working with kids or whatever, they're completely and totally like, yeah, okay, we'll try it. But we'll get to this in just a second. But like, I see you utilize several things uh, that that kind of perhaps maybe make the test a little bit more random because if someone's sitting there, it's not like an RPR test where it's like force based. It's very subtle, uh, but man, whenever you hit that correct, guess what you would say? It's culmination of joint actions. I had it happen, and a kid just looked at me like it. It was like that, you know what I'm saying? And it went all the way yeah. across. And and then finally, I was like, yeah, 
I got you. <laughs> you know, not, not <laughs> I got you, but but we really felt that there was like there was no, you know, there was no putting on, there was no denying it. Whenever you hit mm-hmm. that correct combination, that's actually with the threat response. Man, it's crazy what can happen. So that's kind of mm-hmm. what I was wanting to get at here is how do you ensure good muscle testing uh, as far as like because kids like they can get, you know, extremely like tense or just in, anticipating uh, different muscle tests. So what are some of your metrics or easiest ways that you would suggest to have efficient muscle tests and, and also speak with your clients? Uh, it just comes down to like the way that I, I set it up from the get-go. So like, I'll let them know, well, I'll pretty, I'll just run you through it. What I've virtual, like what I verbally say. So like, I'll put them down on the table and then I'll, um, I'll put their leg off to the side and I go, okay, well, this is all I want you to do. I want you just to, I'm going to tap your ankle two times. And when that happens, I'm going to move your leg towards the other one. I said, I want you to push. I said, don't go all, all out, but enough that I know you're there. Right. So they know that I'm not pushing hard. They're not pushing hard. They'll show a like 90% of the time. The first test I use it 90% uh, passes do the same thing on the opposite side. Same thing. Okay. I'm going to change the test a little bit. and I'll go to our traditional you know, external rotation of the hip. And then I also, they're, they're pretty much their tip fib on my forearm. Cause that will just, I found through testing on my own when they feel more secure, they're less tense. So if they know that I have their leg. They, they don't try and hold their leg up and all these different things that will throw a muscle test off. Same test I'll tap and then they fail. And then that look you're talking about, they give you that look like, what was that? And then I'll have them internally rotate their leg a little bit to give them a little bit more leverage. Do the test again, they pass. And then I'll have them rotate out again. So this is why the rotation is very important. And I'll show them the fail test. And I'll put them into the other phase of movement that will show strong. And then that's how I, I pretty much gain their trust from the get-go. You know I mean, I'll joke with them, like, does it feel like a magic show yet? It's not. And then I'll show them with the circuit locate, which joint is not communicating well. And I'll say, well, that's weird, isn't it? How come when I tap your right hip, you, you lose all your strength, but if you tap your own belly button, all your strength comes back. You tap your chest and we go through all the joints of the body. But so there's something wrong about that right hip. Why does that fail? And then uh, once they realize that and I show them how I go through the, the intervention, I said, go ahead, tap your right hip again. It shows strong. They're like, how'd you do that? I said, well, it's not what I'm doing. I said, it's how your brain's responding now. And then I'll put them through that a few more times. And that's, uh, that's the easiest way I can get them to, to buy in, right. Get this, you know, make sure I'm not tricking them or anything. So I've had people say that they're like, stop tricking me or, you know, they think it's some kind of other thing. I said, no, it's just checking how your brain responds to what we're doing. So I think that's the easiest way for me to go about getting them to trust me. Absolutely. And a couple of things there, as far as like isometric interventions, like I uh, also weight room to, you know, adolescents, they want to uh, everything. Uh, so how, how do you go about also kind of describing the amount of input we want on a particular isometric intervention? Because I feel like if you were to be a little bit too overzealous with that, that might also, again, disrupt the flow um, and nature of everything that you're trying to accomplish within the system. Or I could be wrong. <laughs> maybe, right? I, that's, that's my biggest answer for a lot of stuff is maybe we have that's to right. see. I've had kids either just uh, go through isometric, seeing what they're at. I'll either tell them, look, this is, has to be a max effort. Like, but I'll wait until they're more acclimated to like how my gym runs. Right. I'm not going to have a, a brand new kid come in there and be like, all right, well, I'm going to destroy your life today with max effort stuff. 
So I kind of like, you know, graze them into it. All right, I want you to see if you can hold this for 30 seconds. And I, I warned them at first, said, you know, you may get to a point where you start to like question, do I still want to be doing this or not? Right. And then you have a choice. You can either bow out or you can keep going. And then I just use that in the beginning to try to figure out where are you, right? On this scale of, of do you know how to push yourself? Do you need me to push you? Are you, you self-determined? Like, I got to figure out who you are before I can, I can accurately put you through this program. Absolutely. So just a couple of things. I forgot a couple of things along the way, so I'm going to throw those in there. But um, as far as Signal 6, do you utilize Signal 6? Do you give that to your kids while they're away from you, or is that something that you use as a part of your uh, system at all within Last Resort Restoration? <laughs> uh, dude, I, I use it all. Like the, the biggest thing that my gym – well, that my purpose is for these kids – is that they understand a, a basic lifting routine that they can do on their own when I'm not around and they need to be able to take care of themselves. So I, I'm going to give a, a testament to, to signal six. So I taught one of my athletes, right? The, the signal six, and we also use the self reset a lot. Like that, that has become yeah, the I new want version to talk of signal six. Too, so. Yeah. That is some, we'll, yeah, we'll get into that. So back before we got into the self reset, he's a, he's one of my soccer players. So I taught him how to use signal six and an expression of effort. So like I'd have him sit down leg straight and I said, straighten or flex or extend your right knee and just try to pick it up and tell me what the exertion is, right? Does it feel like a thousand pounds or does it feel really light? So then I'd have him go through signal six and try it again. And then the effort to lift his leg up becomes easy. He's like, wow, that feels really light. So I said, all right, let's make it tougher. Do the same thing, but close your eyes. And now it feels heavy again. Do signal six. So I'm giving him a tool and um, a way to check himself that he's actually hitting the right joint actions. So the, his story is he's playing soccer one day. Uh, he kicks the ball and just, you know, over rotates and pulls his back. Coach pulls him out of the game and he's doing, uh, you know, like traditional things, trying to like pull himself to make things loosen up. And his dad calls him. He goes, hey, he says, do that stuff that Ryan showed you. Uh, he told me he was a little apprehensive about it at first. Right. Because it just looks untraditional. Does it himself fixes his own back, gets himself back in the game? You know what I mean? Like it, I was so proud. I was like, dude. You have taken what I've taught you, learned to use what I've taught you, and you fixed yourself without intervention of anyone else. Got back in the game, scored your goal, and then you went home and did whatever you needed to do. So um, th the fact that they're learning how to apply these different neurological interventions the right way is, you know what I mean? I, to me, that's invaluable for them because they're going to have this information for the rest of their life that they can apply to themselves you know, hopefully get involved with square one on a deeper level and <laughs> pass the knowledge on. Right. It's just a, another big testament to, to learning. Absolutely. Applying. How, like how empowering is it? Is it completely and totally empowering? Uh, because the nature in which we attack injury, uh, you know, so many people I've seen uh, that I follow speak to that, you know, you get hurt. Okay. Sit out, ice it, rest, this and that. There's so many different things that can be done through so many different approaches, such as the simple uh, signal six that could immediately get you back with sitting down today, all day. And of course I got tight and I knew exactly where I was tight at. So I was able to 
and I was stressed out teaching, doing all this different stuff. So I was like, I got to calm mm-hmm. down before I go lift and get on this podcast because I'm going to pull a back muscle and then have to tell Ryan I'm not going to be able to be on because I was just so tight, uh, <laughs> you know, my posterior chain. So I had to go work that out. Everything worked out, right? Because it's just simple inputs like we've been speaking to uh, throughout our entire mm-hmm. conversation. And so let's talk a little bit more uh, because if I'm being completely honest, I, I haven't looked at the self-reset uh, stuff, but I've seen it uh, mentioned and I've seen, you know, the benefits of that program uh, because I believe it involves the eyes and other uh, portions that perhaps the Signal 6 does did not involve originally. Uh, so if we can talk just a little bit about and you don't even have to do it throughout the lens of this. But I've seen you use like subtle inputs like the eyes and just a turn test and continuing to turn and working on, uh, you know, visual fixation or, or different things. So just subtle inputs and, and the way that we can use those for like the VOR, visual, things such as that. Yeah. So like the self-reset, like the way that I use it is because like, you've seen Sean do it. It's specific vestibular positions with nasal breathing, right, has shown that. Is another way to to reset the nervous system with that type of intervention. Like there are other interventions out there where, you know, your nervous system can show a foul muscle test. But then uh, I'll show. I'll give you an example. Right, if you rub your shin bone or any other bone, and then then your nervous system goes back to homeostatic. But there was no intervention. Right, all you did was turn the nervous system back to homeostatic. So we were able to do a faster intervention. Same thing, like you said, like that shotgun approach to specific vestibular and nasal breathing interventions like that's that's pretty much it in a nutshell so like uh or even with like the eye input like you talked about where i rotated to my end range just did a convergence divergence and then i gained like another 10 to 15 degrees of rotation right that's like unheard of so like for me personally i would do that then i would go through the self-reset do it again and all i'm doing is uh See, seeing if that stress will knock me out of homeostasis, use that self-reset intervention to do, make sure that it's becoming safe. The only problem with it uh, is if you don't know how to muscle test on yourself, you just won't know, right? So it comes that shotgun approach again, but we can make faster interventions like that. Like even talking about, I know I want to talk a little bit about the neural cleanup. Yeah, yeah, yeah um, absolutely. So like this is, that's essentially what I do for my neural cleanup. Like I lifted yesterday. I was, you know, a little bit stiff, a little bit sore this morning. So I had some time this, uh, this afternoon before I started working and I went to those spots that were feeling kind of sticky or not great and just figured out what input made them feel better. If it was convergence, if it was VOR, if it was just a position with convergence, whatever. And then I'd follow it with the self reset and then voila, I'm not as tight. I'm not as stiff. Even after everyone was done, I just threw some weight on the bar and I squatted. I squatted yesterday and I felt good enough to where I could do it again. Nothing crazy, right? It was, but still moving more weight than I would if I didn't do any neural kind of cleanup, right? It's just, like you said, finding specific inputs that will evoke a change and then, then reinforcing it through that self-reset. 
Awesome. And I, it goes along really nicely with something I've seen you post as well. So I'll kind of, I guess, give a synopsis of what I saw you share. It was about brainwaves and the rhythmic pattern in which brainwaves, it was something you were reading, basically saying, oh, I'm going to research this. And it was talking about the rhythmic patterns of inputs of brainwaves and that whenever we encounter something that's, you know, out of sync with this rhythmic pattern, then our brain is basically shuts the gate uh, on that. And it was to me looking at that and then looking at other things that you spoke to, the neuro cleanup and just going to the sticky patterns were becoming rhythmic within places and becoming comfortable within those places, I suppose you would say, to where it becomes like mm -hmm. home. Uh, and I really feel like that's kind of a rationale behind a lot of the movement industry, because you can speak so, I guess, subjectively uh, to the way that you want kids to move. Like I tell kids all the time, all these descriptions, I'm like, well, what that means to me and what that means to them is different. But like, if we can feel it, there's a certain pulsation uh, to everything that we do. And I don't want to get too weird tonight, but our brain actually pulses at the same rate as pulsations of the earth like that's been proven like that everything has this man there's a cycle dude like the deeper you look into things there's a huge cycle to things and you speaking to something like the neuro cleanup to me that's finding rhythm and what we've been speaking to the people that aren't neuro based rhythm and coordination is is what would most likely uh come out of this conversation for those individuals so just wanted to kind of throw that out there's rationale as well yeah dude i i agree and that um that book was I got to read heavy. it, man. Like, I, I don't care how heavy it looks great. So I got to read it. <laughs> I'll get to it. It was, <laughs> I'm still processing it. Um, it was just, it was a lot, but yeah, like looking into like the brain waves, right? Like what, obviously we're, we're producing brain waves to happen in these different oscillations and frequencies. And it, it started getting me thinking like, all right, well, if we're creating all these different outputs, like instant changes in outputs, what are we actually doing to these brain waves? And then uh, there's actually a, a brainwave I had no idea about called a mu wave, which is an oscillation that happens uh, during muscle contractions. And I was like, what in the world is this? So looking into that and trying to figure out and then what it is, how it works and how, how can we manipulate it to get the most out of it, right? And I know you're talking about like um, uh, minimal doses, right? And then figuring out, what is what's too much what's not enough and what's just right because all brains are different and i've been doing different experiments while listening to specific tones while i'm working out or um with a couple of my more advanced athletes having them you know what does this do to your body after we said being body weight and whatnot what does your body do and i've found that after they have been able to accept whatever the specific tone is output will increase and also the other thing I need to be careful of is if too much because I'll look at them and they're like, I'm fried. We're halfway through the workout and I'm done. I said, then cut it. We're, we're done for today. You're going to go home, rest, get something to eat and go take a nap. Like I, I overdid it today. That's my fault. So finding these optimal ways to get the brain to work. I don't know, man. It's some, it's some wild stuff, but, and just figuring it out because there's not a lot of research on this. Anything that I've, I've looked up on different brain waves mostly for helping, at least in the lens that I'm looking at. I'm looking at it to, to help promote outcomes in an athletic and weight room setting. But a lot of the research out there is with like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, uh, Tourette's, uh, all of these different medical uh, or clinician side 
um, type of interventions. And then also stuff that we don't have, like we don't have EEG machines. We don't have neurofeedback machines. We're not going to perform open brain surgery on our guys as they're curling. Right. So, um, is there a way, a way to manipulate the brain waves uh, without being so uh, intrusive? Absolutely. So that's the that's the journey I'm on right now. But we'll see. We'll see what happens. Yeah, man. This is this has been awesome. Just kind of like one other thing. This is not per se related, but like I just like to throw things out there every now and then, and I feel like you can tie to the grander scheme of things because I've been on this big longevity kick too. Damn you, David Sinclair. Uh, but I've been reading that too in my spare time, right? And, uh, you know, I was reading some research today and it was talking about how like over time, like uh, I guess it was Gompertz is the uh, person from way back 1800s. They used to analyze basically, he had this analysis that once you reach your mid 20s, like beyond that, every year you just become exponentially closer to death basically. And that was just like the accepted way in which we viewed our progression to death and, and to, to our end, essentially that once we got over like 25 years old, that was it basically. And not, not that it was it, but that we were getting closer and closer and we were just accelerating our rate to death. But what we're finding now is like our understanding of like how our body even functions and regenerates that we can push that clock back and that we can shift it in things. And like mm-hmm. the reason that that all was making so much sense to me is because we view everything in such a linear sense. Somebody walks into my weight room, the word we use like green. And then we have this model, which we're going to continue to build and scaffold, and we're going to get them stronger. And we just see them getting to the top of, I have a pyramid, so the top of the pyramid, right? But the Mm -hmm. thing is that there is no linear path to me, that things can go forward and backwards and haywire and all over the place. But we have so much, that, that should be so liberating to us as movement specialists, because we have every need that we have at our own disposal to change everything, to turn the clock back and to take you back to square one. That was kind of my whole point of that, because like we used to have just this idea, linear progression. Once you hit here, you're just going to continue to accelerate. But man, if you can change your stress inputs, man, if you can change the way you eat, the way you exercise and some other different things, maybe supplementation, they found you can turn back your clock, you know, and a lot Mm -hmm. of people are, are, you know, kind of interested in that. But it's the same with movement, man. Uh, so I, that was just kind of going through my mind as I was getting ready for this podcast, because I feel like you probably feel the same way. I've felt helpless before. I felt like I couldn't make interventions in people's uh, movement strategies. But I'm here to tell you that if you'll go back to what we talked about, motor control, motor patterns, motor learning, assess threat, and continue to test repeatedly and to verify and validate you'll be rewarded for your efforts. So just kind of, uh, if you want to throw anything in there on that, and then I'm going to give you an opportunity to talk about where people can find you and check out all the awesome stuff you're doing, man. I can, I can speak to that. How many, like, cause you've used square one more in like a one-on-one setting and it is a hundred percent gradual. Like, it's just amazing how, when people are in at the end of their rope in terms of like, I have exhausted every option to fix me. And now I'm moving like I did 10 years ago in like an hour, two hours, whatever the case may be, like that will never, ever get old, ever. Because um, I've used square one on, on both sides. Uh, it just, and even I can test to it for myself. I had really, really bad back pain uh, when I was like early 20s. You know what I mean? I would, I remember I was like, man, I would love to just put my shorts on without like, screaming pain from my hips up to my neck and i i don't have that at all like 
at all. So I've turned back the clock on myself and with other clients. Like you see it. Um, I've had a couple kids come in where they're like, you know what? I don't think I'm going to play baseball anymore because my shoulder is just so done. I was like, well, uh, maybe let me see what I can do for you. And then they go back out there and they can, they can go play. They're back on the team. So uh, even for older individuals who, you know what I mean? Picking their coffee cup up to their mouth is, that feels like a deadlift to us. And, you know, and now they're like, ah, well, my mornings are better because I can drink my coffee and I can go out and do what I need to. So yeah, man, that is a, uh, turning back the clock, the better burn, the better we operate and understand how to receive sensory input, determine what to do with it is it important and how to create motor outputs will, will change your life. hundred percent. Absolutely, man. Well, I've really enjoyed this conversation. You know, you're my second perspective. I had Sean on early. Actually, you're my third perspective on Square One. But, uh, you know, every time you get somebody on, you know, you always find something different. I feel like we really went down some rabbit holes here and probably have plenty of more to go down in the future. And uh, mm-hmm. I'd look forward to definitely have more conversations with you. But to kind of close out, I just uh, tell people where they can find you. Uh, anything that you have out there that you'd like to throw out there, um, you, you have the mic. Yeah, uh, you can find me on Instagram. Uh, last underscore resort underscore restoration. I'm on there. That's where I do most of my posting and, and talking with people. Uh, I'm also on Twitter, r underscore Thompson underscore LRR. That'd be it. And I'm still getting more active on there, uh, which I, it's pretty good. Um, but those are the places that you can find me. And then obviously, if you reach out to me uh, and we have good conversation, uh, we'll just keep talking and talking and talking and just developing and, and figuring out more of how we work as humans and how to optimize it. Yeah, absolutely, man. That's what we're here for, especially movement professionals. There is no end of the line. There is no answer. Uh, I remember I used to want that answer, but like now I wouldn't even be mm-hmm. satisfied if I got it because I know it would be, you know, it'd be false. It wouldn't be true. Uh, I've had, <laughs> I've seen too many people speak to that and I talked to enough people to know that. So I understand there is no end of the line, but it's just such a worthwhile pursuit. So man, I, I love your perspective. I love the material you, you put out there. Uh, I look forward to more collaboration and conversations in the future, brother. And I appreciate you for taking time with me today and sitting down with me. Of course, man. I, I appreciate you having me on. Honestly, it's truly an honor to sit here and talk to you. We will have a lot more conversations. I'm sure of it. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Check the notes for links to Ryan's socials, where he shares a lot of his training footage, displaying some of the ideas discussed in today's episode. I've also linked Square One Systems page for those that are interested in exploring it and checking out the system. Make sure to take advantage of $15 off the Virtual Speed and Performance Clinic by utilizing my personal code FTGUPOD15 at checkout. Don't forget to subscribe to keep up with the latest content and leave a rating and review if you feel led to do so.